0: Future Proof with Jonathan McCrae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McCrae. Coming up on this week's program, uh, we're going to be talking about Mars. And uh, and we've talked a, a lot about how hard it is to survive there, how cold it is, you know, bringing water there and growing plants. But beyond mere survival, we haven't really talked about what happens next. And one thing's for sure, at some point, there will be people living for long periods of time on Mars. So if you could start from scratch with the materials you can bring with you and the surface of Mars, how do you go about planning the perfect city? That's what we'll be talking about in this week's episode. First off, if you were down at the BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition, um, I hope you, you got a chance to have a look around and talk to some of the kids and really soak up what is really an extraordinary uh, event that happens in this country every single year. Decades it's been around and every year I'm always amazed by the quality of the science and the the enthusiasm and intelligence and engagement of the students. It was my first year going as a parent uh, of someone uh, who actually was taking part, Casper, my son, was was presenting at the BT Young Scientist. And it, it is a really special thing that we have um, here in Ireland. And I think it is um, an absolute uh, pride of our calendar uh, that we get to have this event where loads of people descend on the RTS to talk about really interesting ideas in science. So well done to everyone involved. OK, um, it's time to look back at the week's science news uh, and joining us in studio is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from Icraig, Dr. Fergus McAuliffe. You're both very welcome. Our first story is about failure in space, Fergus.
2: It is. So this is a really interesting story. So it was the UK's first attempt to send a satellite into space. They did it in a really interesting way. So the mission was called Cosmic Girl, uh which i believe was named after a demarquey song as far as i believe so it was a virgin orbit rocket that launched off the back of a boeing 747 so essentially it took off from cornwall traveled southwest off the coast of cork and kerry and then the rocket itself was effectively dropped off the side of the boeing 747 and it fell f- for a few seconds and then it ignited and it started to climb in altitude Pretty quickly, um, and everything was going playing sailing. There was huge cheers in Cornwall back at the spaceport. But then something went wrong. So the so the rocket itself and the nine satellites contained inside in it uh, it never made it into orbit. And this was a huge disappointment because the UK are really trying to make themselves um, a leader in this space in the European context. So initially, after the rocket. Uh, came off the plane, it went into this, what I find intriguing, it's called a barbecue roll. So what that means is that the rocket is essentially sort of slightly moving to the left, slightly moving to the right, and that is to prevent any one side of the rocket becoming too hot. Right. It then reached a speed uh, of 22 times the speed of sound, and then the second stage of the launch failed. So somewhere near-ish off Spain and Portugal the rocket, they're calling it an anomaly because they don't necessarily know what happened. They also don't necessarily know where it is, but is It is in the sea somewhere off the coast of Spain and Portugal.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's funny actually. On Twitter, they were talking about you know the UK calling it, all the UK press calling it um, Europe's uh, failure in, in in research. And if they had been successful, I think that that would have been UK success in <laughs> launching the rocket. But um, it, look, any any sort of uh, mission. So much work and effort and energy goes into that decades sometimes in planning. Probably not decades for this one, but certainly a very long time. It's an awful shame that it happened. Does it put a question mark over further launches
2: in the UK? Has there been talk about that? Um, not necessarily a question mark. They they always knew that there was a chance of this one failing. And if anything, it has doubled their resolve to actually get themselves into space and become a commercial lead in this. The UK have a long history of... Um, of making satellites, but also the data um, and the data analysis. But what they're trying to make a name for themselves is actually being able to do the full uh, the full system. So sending things up there themselves.
0: Yeah, and uh, anybody who knows anything about the European Space Agency, there is a lot of um, stuff that goes on with a launch. And the, in French Guiana, the Russians are very um, uh, sort of key to the process of launching rockets from French Guiana. Um, and most of those European Space Agency rockets I remember when I was I was there, uh, there was a lot of talk about how the Russians didn't tell the Europeans what had happened to the rocket for about a minute because they could. That was the, that was the talk. <laughs> so, um, given relations between Russia and Europe, uh, certainly figuring out how to do things solely
2: in Europe may be of use. So, speaking of the Russians, they are about to play a really important role on the International Space Station. So, there is currently a capsule that is docked on the space station and recently it was hit by a tiny meteoroid, a tiny uh, speck of sand that blew a hole in the side of it. That capsule can now no longer return to Earth. So the three astronauts that went up in it are stuck on the International Space Station Mm. and we are relying on the Russian Space Agency to send up um, a new capsule to bring them home. Uh, really interesting,
0: and particularly in this in, in this political environment, uh, really interesting what's going on in space right now. Um, Ruth, our second story uh, has to do with a new part of the body being discovered, which I didn't think, I thought we knew everything about the human body by now.
1: I know it's really really interesting to see this this is uh, research that was just published in Science from researchers in Denmark and the US and it's a new part of the brain and we've all I suppose unfortunately heard of the meninges because meningitis is a disease that happens when that coating around the brain or those layers around the brain get infected but in fact there's three we, we've always known there was three layers of membranes I- around our brain directly under the skull there's a tough layer called the dura matter and then directly around the brain there's a very delicate inner, inner layer and that's called the pia matter. Uh, And between those two layers is the arachnoid. And it's quite a big space there that's filled with cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that wraps around our brain. But these researchers they went to look at that area. And what they did was they had brain slices from mice and they used fluorescent staining. So they were able to stain different cell types. And lo and behold, they saw a consistent layer of unique cell types um, that, that were actually impermeable. So they, they they were able to define that this was a new layer. Uh, because it's in that arachnoid space, and um, they're calling it the subarachnoidal lymphatic like membrane, which luckily uh, is SLIM for short, so we can talk about the SLIM now. Uh, and it seems like it could be a really important part of the brain. So it's a very, very exciting discovery.
0: Do, do we discover new parts of the body very often?
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. It's pretty exciting. Certainly not. I think we discover new cells or what cells might do uh, and new pathways. Of course we do but like this is quite a big thing to discover even though it's only a few cells thick it does seem to to stop particles travelling between the upper and lower layers and the other thing that's really it sort of seems to, seem, seems to help the brain in that cleaning so like our body has a lymphatic system that helps clean away waste our brain has a glymphatic system which is you know really important in cleaning waste out of our brain it's really important in certain diseases like Alzheimer's disease and uh, multiple sclerosis so you know and this layer has its its own unique set of immune cells. So wow. what the researchers think is it's sort of a surveillance system for that cerebrospinal fluid. It's a surveillance system for the brain, but it's also keeping the brain's own special immune system separate from the rest of the body's immune system.
0: Very quickly, you said you, that they saw this in mice. Do we have the, that same slim in human brains?
1: So we don't know yet. This is in mice, but I think the expectation is yes, that we will see that. But I think, you know, the fact that we're only seeing this now does, you know, it shows that it's really hard to see these things. You do need very, very specialist techniques and although this is all wrapped up in a nice research paper, you can see that it's just years and years of work in doing this really detailed staining and you need real expertise. These groups have been working on the brain for decades and they're part of the groups that have helped us to understand that lymphatic system. So it's building on many, many years of really outstanding research. So really exciting because I think you know we now need to take this into account when we're looking at getting drugs to the brain, mm. when we're we're looking at maybe treating some of those diseases that where we see buildup of protein in the brain, this, this membrane could have a really critical role to play. So it's really, really exciting science.
0: Fergus, our third story has to do with so-called dark lightning. What on earth is that?
2: Well, it's something that's very ominously named for sure. Dark lightning. Let's start with regular lightning first, just to remind ourselves what that is. So that's, it's the electric lightning bolt that we're all familiar with. It's the discharge um, of charge between two different clouds or the clouds on the ground. Dark lightning happens very, very rarely, but it does happen in the thunderstorms that we're familiar with. So what scientists believe is happening in a thunderstorm is that such is the amount of energy that is in a thunderstorm that it actually spurs electrons up to near the speed of light. When those electrons smash into molecules of air, they then release large amounts of gamma radiation. Gamma radiation is really unusual on Earth in a natural setting. It really only happens when stars collapse right. or, or when we set off a nuclear bomb. So this dark lightning, it's um, they reckon it happens about 1,000 times per day somewhere in the planet. But why it's in the news of late is because a new paper has come out that has effectively looked at the incidence of dark lightning and plotted that against where planes fly. Because where dark lightning is likely to happen is about 10 to 15 kilometres up in the air, which is exactly the uh, the altitudes that planes fly at. Right. So by by taking a look at the incidence of dark lightning, and also plotting out air routes and knowing that pilots will pretty deliberately avoid thunderstorms, they reckon that about once every one to four years a plane may be hit by dark lightning. What does that look like? Yeah. Well, it'll be a faint. <laughs> Is that good or bad? It'll be a faint purplish, pinkish glow that will be really, really quick. And what does it feel like? Well, nothing initially but such is the amount of energy that gamma rays um, uh, contain that it'll be about the equivalent of receiving 10 chest x-rays in one instance. So it is something to think about. It is ominously aimed but the chances of this happening to you on a flight are so slim that absolutely should not you should not put yourself offline. flying.
0: Right. Very good. Our final story Ruth has to do with open water swimming which I know you do year round.
1: Mm, Yeah, I know. I wish you hadn't got me to cover this story, Johnny. It's exactly why it is. So it's about pulmonary edema. And again, a bit like, just before we go to what swimming-induced pulmonary edema is, what is a pulmonary edema? And it's basically when you've got fluid in your lungs. And sometimes when your heart can't pump that efficiently, blood backs up in the veins. And that, of course, puts pressure on the blood vessels. And as the pressure increases, fluid can be pushed into your lungs, into the air spaces in your lungs. So this can be obviously caused by heart failure and it can be also caused by infections or toxins or trauma or or high altitude so anytime your heart is damaged or working really hard and in the early 80s it was first described in divers and I guess it's that combination of cold of exertion that's putting pressure on the heart and and suddenly we're seeing increased pressure and then fluid in the lungs Um, so what happens when you have this obviously a cough you can be coughing up blood shortness of breath it all sounds terrible but actually it normally resolves in about 24 hours so while it can be serious and obviously if you're in the the water and you can't get out it could be fatal it usually does sort itself out um, it's not that uncommon so what we're seeing now is you know about 1 in 200 people that take part in this very extreme race in Sweden will suffer from it uh, 1 in 20 people who train you know in extreme conditions in the US military have it and so the estimate about 1 to 2% of triathletes have you know, suffer from this. So so it's not nothing. And of course, as we're seeing that increased incidence of people swimming in cold water, the incidence is going up. So it's in the news this week because there was a particular case of a woman who, who had this trauma and the researchers were able to get her out of the water, get her into the hospital. Medics looked at her and they were able to see this fluid on her heart and fluid on her lungs. Um, so really, it's kind of a call out to people to be aware of this condition because I think it's it's little known. Uh, particularly anyone who's organising tri- triathlons. I mean, she was very lucky. They had a great medical team. Hmm. They knew what they, they knew what it was as soon as they saw her. So she was fine. Um, but, you know, they do think this is probably one of the reasons why people drown swimming, you know, when we don't know what's happened in the so past. So what should
0: you look out for if you are, you know, exerting yourself in very cold water? S-
1: so certainly any shortness of breath. I mean, any feeling. She said she could feel the fluid coming into her lungs. And she was swimming in water that was about 17 degrees wearing a wetsuit. Um, so she wasn't swimming in extreme cold water, right, but okay. she was in a race condition. It was yeah. an open water swim. So really, excess exertion. I mean, look, with any of these things, they have seen increased risk factors. So obviously, if you have high blood pressure, if you're a woman, if you do suffer from vasoconstriction, so you're generally cold and those kind of things, those can be higher risk factors. Um, so, but definitely shortness of breath, palpitations, anything. I get you shortness of breath does.
0: and palpitations every time I go into the water, the <laughs> forty So, know. I mean, I, 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 you've got me freaked out. Well, but.
1: but you know, the good news again, of course, science is looking what might happen, and there are drugs. There's a drug called uh, Slidinafil, and that treats pulmonary arter- artery hypertension. So, what that does, it relaxes your blood vessels inside and allows the blood to flow. Uh, we normally call it Viagra. But there's a number of studies going on now which says actually Viagra taken in advance might help people who have a predisposition to this kind of condition. So
0: Wasn't wasn't Viagra in, invented for a heart condition? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, very interesting. All right, so have your Viagra next time you go out swimming uh, is the is not absolutely, absolutely not the recommendation. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation, she's like, I'm not associating myself with that comment. Uh, Dr Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation, thank you very much, Dr Fergus Bacola from iCrag 2. Now, the notion of human beings getting to and settling on Mars has been a staple of science fiction for decades, but it's getting close and closer every year. And beyond just getting by, surviving, managing to do with oxygen, water and food, after a couple of months, years even, we're going to start to need to build proper infrastructure for them. And something I hadn't really thought about is how do you build a first Martian neighborhood? Well, it's something, happily, our next guest has spent a lot of time thinking about. His name is Justin Hollander. He's urban planning professor at Tufts University in Massachusetts and author of a book called The First City on Mars, An Urban Planner's Guide to Settling on the Red Planet. Welcome to the program, Justin. How are you?
3: Great. Well, thank you for having me, Jonathan.
0: This is um, a really interesting idea. I'm just wondering um, what, what, what... sort of considerations would be different for, for somewhere like Mars? Because surely the the when it comes to building cities, we've built cities uh, on Earth already. Why do we need to think so much about the urban planning of somewhere like Mars?
3: Well, you know, Mars is quite different from Earth. Um, it's, a, it's a smaller planet. Um, it um, is further from the sun, and it doesn't have much of an atmosphere, which means a couple things. One is uh, radiation is a pretty serious problem, and also the atmosphere is not made up of the kind of atmosphere we're used to on Earth. So, so the breathing the air is a lot more challenging. So, so yeah, we have to we have to do a bunch of things. We have to kind of think about those that very kind of cold climate that that exists on Mars, um, and and here's where we can kind of learn from Earth, but but we do need to do things differently. And then we also have to kind of think about all the different ways to protect people and make them safe while while living on Mars. So designers,
0: um, when when they're in an engineering space, are very much looking at utility and that much of the space stuff we have right now is very much looking at what is the function, what's the minimum weight, and how do we get this work? How and why do we need to think about urban planning in a slightly different way when we're talking about building cities or neighborhoods in Mars?
3: Yeah, so um, you know, the most any human has has been on a, another celestial body is on, uh, on when humans landed on the, on the moon, and so that was just for you know a very short uh, period. So, what what does it mean to actually like live on another planet? So you need to create an environment that meets our innate needs. You know, we can't ignore human emotion, human psychology. And so that has to really be built in from the beginning. Otherwise, people will not be happy, and, and, and that'll be a real big problem for any kind of uh, potential future settlement.
0: So how does urban planning go about solving
3: that problem then? Right, and there's a, there's a lot of things that we have learned from human settlement here on Earth that we can, we can translate. Um, you know, one is really just kind of thinking through the experience of a person who's living on Mars. So that's like, where are they gonna work? how are they going to live how are they going to get from those two places so here we think about questions around transportation and mobility one of the things that we we've learned from really kind of harsh climates cold climates on earth is is underground tunnels and transportation can be really very effective so so that's something that we can build into any future cities on Mars, right from the very beginning, to kind of imagine that that's going to be the main way that that people get around a city and and, and connect with other cities as well through through those kinds of underground tunneling systems. You may have heard um, Elon Musk; he has this company called the the Boring Company, you know, trying to trying to solve the traffic problems of Los Angeles by by digging tunnels. Well, it's really expensive <laughs> to, <laughs> to build tunnels under existing cities. Um, so yeah, so if you if you if you think about this you know beforehand, what what's probably uh, decades before people are going to be uh, settling Mars, if we think about it before, we can make sure that that the kind of a, a basic framework is in place to be able to to create that kind of transportation system. Um, why not why underground? Why is underground useful? Yeah, so the hazards of being on Mars, um have um one of the one of the biggest ones is, is radiation right and the kind of gla- the kind of radiation that that can really harm harm someone you you're protected by by having it underground another hazard is the the dust there's just um a lot of dust that's uh, that circulates little red little red specks of dust and then there are pretty frequent dust storms and this just wrecks havoc on any kind of machine or Mechanical systems, um, which which you would need on a, a surface level, you know, transportation network. Right.
0: And so that that makes sense. Um, uh, building something underground. But if we're talking about urban planning and trying to make you know an, an idyllic new colony for Mars, it sounds pretty depressing to be stuck <laughs> under tunnels for so long. And the aesthetic of space stuff, since you know, since we first came across it in you know the early, for me, it was Star Wars, but of course it predates that by maybe thirty years in screen and film. It's very clean and sterile, and uh, and that's fine for a mission when you need everything to work, but. In real life, as you go on, um, you want something more than that. Like, is there a, when you were writing this book, were you thinking about, you know, how do we design a place on another planet that also is a fun or an enjoyable place to be? What considerations do you have to make for that?
3: Yeah, no, I, th- I thought a lot about that. And, and um, you know, I think that we can do that on Mars you know you definitely want to spend a lot of time protected from radiation but you also need solar <laughs> exposure you know we need that we need that for 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 warmth um mm-hmm. and for vitamins and, and and it's a really good thing for people to have that for their emotional well-being to have that that exposure to sunlight so you do need to have um some ability for people to have it, uh, that kind of exposure and and you know what i did in this in this book was a lot of research to try to understand all of these different dimensions of urban planning. So, you know, have those kinds of questions around the psychology, questions around construction, infrastructure, building design, architecture, but then, you know, ended up with a series of principles and then use that to sketch out uh, a design, you know, what, what this might look like. And, and in our design, what we really found was you really need to have uh, really these kind of central spaces that are really park-like and, and we have every reason to believe that plants should be able to grow and thrive in Mars with the, with the right conditions. So yeah, there's no reason we can't build basically a central park <laughs> right on uh, uh, real, real parks, right on, um, on Mars and, and give places for people to recreate and play uh, ball fields. That so we have this one illustration we have of a basketball court. Um, so, yeah. wait, wait, but isn't I gravity think, different on Mars? <laughs> we'll uh, learn how to play basketball a little bit differently. Would I be able That's, to dunk is, on Mars? That is true. It's different. Yeah, you will, actually. Oh my God.
0: I played basketball for 15 oh, wow. years and I, was, I, was, I always ever got the top of the rim. By about and an extra six inches, never manage to dunk. That would be that would be a lifelong dream. I go to Mars just to be able to dunk. But um, <laughs> you were talking about architecture and all these things, and it sounds so science fiction. But practically, you know, where are you going to get the rocks? I mean, what sort of what sort of rocks do we have on Mars, and are they you know are they good for building? Because obviously, there's some there's there's some materials that are used for building here that are terrible. You know, um, what do we know about Mars rocks and whether or not they'd be good in building? you know, the basketball courts of the
3: future? Yeah, I know. It's such a great question because um, even though humans have not yet been there, there have been numerous missions to Mars and and we've collected lots of samples and, and we actually have a pretty good idea. It's uh, the, the rocks are, It's called regolith. That's what they call it. Um, and Regolith. It, yeah, regolith. And it really is believed to have the same kind of properties that a lot of the rocks that we have on Earth are and that there's every reason to believe that it can be with minimal processing, the kind of processing that people have been doing for thousands of years. We could turn that into bricks, ceramics, glass, and even concrete. So the the materials are there. Um, you know, there are certain things that some membranes, some types of metals that we might not have on Mars. So, so those are things that we'd probably have to bring. Um, but yeah, we, we really, we could do a lot like on site. So try to not have to not have to bring a lot of uh, equipment, but to to build it right there. It just, I mean,
0: when you think about all the things that go into building, forget about building, even just like doing DIY in your home, the amount of waste <laughs> and the amount of resources. I mean, isn't this a bit crazy to be thinking about now, the idea that, you know, that we we need to consider urban planning when we don't yet know how to make a brick or, a you know, or a vehicle <laughs> go for, for more than a year. You know, like, isn't that... What's the point of thinking about something that is so far away from where we are right now?
3: Well, I mean, you know, we, um, you know in the United States, uh, NASA is is planning on doing exactly what I'm describing uh, on the moon within 10 years from now. Um, and they're talking about, you know, the, the same kind of uh, uh, rocks and um, lunar dust can be converted into bricks and ceramic and glass on, on the moon. So, so that is actually uh, in the works. And there have been tests, um, on earth to, to see if these things would work and we've every reason to think so and so the, the but the big impetus for for looking at this today in 2023 is because the science and the missions are moving forward and we need to make sure that this kind of proactive thinking is happens well before the first rockets are packed with <laughs> with equipment and, and and travel out there so so it's really about being proactive. One thing that we learned from the human colonization of Earth, the way that um, countries would pack up all their things, you know the Greeks, they would load up their chariots and they would go far away, they'd put all their stuff in their boats, travel for months and then set up a new new settlement. So what we learned is that you you have to you have to prepare and they would do that. They would prepare months if not years in advance of, of one of these. Um, uh, project. So so I think that, that we need to do the same thing. And while there may still be some, some technological questions, um, you know I think that the consensus that I've found in the scientific literature is that that, that most of the questions have been answered in that um, it's really about the dangers. There's, it is dangerous, there's no question about that, and then the cost because it's going to be expensive. To get that get that going. It's, it's, I mean, there
0: have been many images of what what uh, you know space colonies look like. Is there a a best shape or or look or um, design to a city in uh, Dubai? They have these you know these palm tree islands that are falling apart. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and then there's, you know, the, the Eskimos have the igloo, and then the New Yorkers have the skyscraper. Like, is there a knowing what you know about the physics uh, of Mars and the atmosphere? Is there a a particular design that would work well for a Martian city? You know, is it domes? Is it, um, is it blocks? Yeah,
3: no, it's is it teepees? You're right. It is um, <laughs> it's, it is domes. Um, you know, because what we do know from uh, research here on Earth in terms of um, you know what are the kind of ideal shapes and 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 those are. the rounded shapes are really the ideal for for be able to reduce heat loss. Um, the other thing is trying to kind of uh, reduce the, the number of exposed surfaces and structural openings to a minimum. That also is something that we that we know will help. Um, but yeah, I mean the the dome also can can really work well with a uh, crater. And I talked about um, how important it is that there be spaces that people can be underground. So naturally occurring craters is also really something that we w- would seek to 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 build on um, to be able to benefit from the, the those depressions. And then then the domes can essentially provide a, a cover while also um, providing a light and sunlight. And so how do, like how do we
0: Make these domes or these these new buildings. I mean, we don't have um, we don't have cranes on uh, on Mars, surely, or, or or do we need you know such advanced um, technology because there's less gravity? Is it easier to build a, a building, or how how would we make the first factory on Mars or the first um, uh, two up two down?
3: Yeah, so it's it's so fascinating because building science on Earth has really has really. Grown so much lately, we have the ability using 3D printers to build houses, and that's been done on Earth. Um, so, so a lot of scientists are really looking at uh, the ability to be able to set up uh, 3D printers on Mars, and then use locally resourced materials like that, like the regolith, um, and 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 put that in as essentially the the feeding material for the 3D printer, and then build all the buildings. So all totally automated. So so really amazing ability to be able to and that a lot of this could happen before people even arrive, you know, that these these 3D printers, automated building of new buildings. And then when people arrive, the buildings are already there.
0: In researching this book, were there things that we take for granted here on Earth that just will never be possible on Mars due to the, the lower gravity or the amount of oxygen? Are there some things that no matter how you want to build you know, a basketball court or a swimming pool, that they just won't work because the the, the, the very physics of Mars would prevent it?
3: Well, I would say like a, like a water fountain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I think yeah, we're gonna you're definitely not gonna see water features. Um, you know, we there's there's really no surface water on Mars. Um, so so that that's really gonna be different. And and I would d- definitely tell you that as I've been thinking about this and researching this book, I think more than anything, I appreciate <laughs> what we have. Yeah. So so you can't breathe the, breathe the air on Mars, and there there are definitely people who believe that. With the proper interventions, Mars can be terraformed to shape it to be more Earth-like. To increase the uh, atmospheric pressure, increase um, the um, protections against radiation, and change the um, the air so that it's uh, more breathable. But you know, we're, we're if if that's even possible. Uh, we're certainly at least centuries away from that being able to happen. So any early colonization, people basically just wouldn't be able to spend a lot of time outside without being in pressurized uh, spacesuits with 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 their own oxygen supply, so the ability to just kind of go outside and go for a walk or have a, like lie down in a forest. I mean, <laughs> so like listening.
0: enjoy this earth while you can eat. seems to be the awesome. message to me here. Yes,
3: Justin. definitely the message.
0: What was the what was the one thing that really surprised you in the writing of this book? What was the one thing that when when you learned it, you were
3: like, "Wow, I have not really thought about it that way." Well, I think probably the the food question. Um, I mean, people don't really talk too much about <laughs> what would <do> we eat. <laughs> If we were to be on Mars, and you know, there's there's just a pretty strong scientific consensus that animals are not really practical. Yeah. So if that's the case, if we don't, if we're not gonna have animals, what are we gonna eat? Well, we're gonna eat plants and single cell proteins, um, and those will have to all be just uh, grown in in different types of greenhouses or or below ground hydroponic facilities. Um, so yeah, just kind of even just thinking about how the diet, uh, the human diet, would just be so drastically different on Mars. Um, Pretty amazing.
0: So the the next Mars um, expedition, vegans only uh, need apply. Really interesting, uh, Justin Hollander is (laughs) is author of uh, The First City on Mars, An Urban Planner's Guide to Settling the Red Planet. Justin, thanks for your time.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: I remember a long time ago um we were talking about Mars 1 on the program. Do you remember that? Um there was a Dutch guy uh who was convinced he was going to get funding to get to send like the first human colonizers of Mars and i was so enthralled of the idea i didn't listen to many of the space scientists who said this is never going to happen but you know that that's that's the case for many scientists all over the world where they were told it's not going to happen and eventually did. this guy wasn't a scientist um if if memory serves but he had a really big ambition that was a reality tv show that'd be funded watched worldwide and then he'd send people to be uh colonists on mars i have to say i still think it would make a great tv show i really do uh because you'd be sending people to live there for the rest of their lives i mean who wouldn't watch that, and if you have a global audience of seven billion, surely that's worth a lot of money? surely that money could be used anyway that was that was his thoughts so i I think you know the idea of figuring out you know how we're going to build living spaces on Mars I think it's such a fascinating idea. It feels so science fictiony, but we will see people walk on mars in in certainly in our lifetime. I don't know how you how old you are you could be very old maybe not in your time, maybe just Maybe you haven't got that long left. Right, um, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. Um, And we had a huge reaction to Johan Harry. I thought we would because it was just that time. Johan Harry wrote a book called Stolen Focus. And in it, he was talking a little bit about um, the the various different factors. There's 12 different things that really stop us from focusing and paying attention. Highly recommended as, uh, as a book to kind of go through... Uh, some of these ideas. Um, But you had a big response to it. So uh, GH uh, texted in saying, fascinated listening to um, Johan. I quit my job five years ago to look after my two ASD kids. I worked in the corporate world at a moderately high level in my last five years. My ability to sustain attention had increased, attention had increased exponentially. Mostly I put it down to the Removing the gargantuan strain that work in the corporate world puts on your mind. It was as if a huge part of my mind was emptied like a glacier or an empty field. It has genuinely changed who I am and in a very positive way. I didn't go looking for it, so I can't claim to be a visionary or anything, but it makes sense, everything that guy was talking about. I was only having a chat with um, the the PD, the the the, uh, the program director of the station, uh, at the coffee station, saying we just have so many demands on us now. Like the amount of stuff that is in my head that I've got to do is insane, and then and that's and then that's just non-work stuff. Uh, so totally agree. Really interesting that you gave up um, your job to look after uh, kids because people would often say it's you know a much more stressful thing, but. Uh, I guess it depends on the personality, doesn't it? I think if I give up my job to look after my kids, I would find that very, very hard. Um, but uh, but maybe I wouldn't. Maybe my mind would empty like a glacier uh, into an empty field. We were also uh, talking about, you know, how technology uh, impacts us. And someone says, no devices should be present at mealtimes. If you can't eat your food without looking or using a device, there's a very big problem coming for you down the line. Enjoy your food and stop allowing these devices destroying family time and memories." We don't have um, devices at the table. We don't need them for distractions. Like my kids literally are like they're in a circus or something when they're eating their meal. I cannot get them to sit down and finish a tiny plate of food without literally circling the building about four times. They have too much energy. Another one says, uh, oh, this is Aiden saying, I zone out when things are boring. If a subject is boring, one tends to zone out. I don't need a PhD for that explanation. Um, that's true because Johan was talking about um, how we learn and if someone is teaching you something that's boring or they don't, they don't engage you before they try and give you information then it's not going to work very well. I loved this model he was talking about about schools I think it was in Germany where at the beginning of the year they'd picked a subject like you know Roman buildings and then all through the year they would look at it from all different angles so scientific and maths and the, and culture and history and they would learn about the thing they were interested in all year from various different angles. I thought it was a really clever way of engaging kids across the year on a single subject. Um, Sue on Twitter says, having a social media free day today. (laughs) Are you, Sue? (laughs) Because you're tweeting us. Uh, Breaking the fast to say yes to Stolen Focus author. Sounds like a must read uh, if I can find the time. Sounds like you do need it, Sue. Thanks. Uh, Jennifer says, fascinating stuff. Good book choice for the new year too. Yes, we thought so. Um, And David says, found this very interesting and relevant as a school principal. Thanks very much for getting in touch, David. Um, Tom Tom, uh, emailed in. He said, Hi, Jonathan. I enjoy your Sunday morning slot. However, with all the inverted commas science, we seem to be heading for a scorched planet. Hope I'm wrong. I watched a YouTube video recently that made me sit up. Um, This is where my red flag goes off and uh, alarm bells start going and my bow ties start spinning. Um, When someone says, I saw a YouTube video that made me sit up. It's called What the Health. It's uh, curious that there's a growing info on how whole food Um, plant-based diets can fix 80 plus percent of our illnesses, yet I hear virtually nothing on this topic. That, to me, as someone who really supports journalism, should be the thing that you look out for. If it is not being reported widely in mainstream journalism, it's probably for a reason. And, you know, there are a number of um, websites like Time Magazine and Fact Checkers who have said there's a lot of claims in that um, YouTube video that is, uh, that are, out and out wrong and then there's another large portion of them that are misleading. It, you know, it's um it's a, I, I, I like the idea of it. You know, the guy talking about how he just gave up everything and just doing plant based um nutrition, but the claims he makes in it Uh, are just not true. It's great for the environment if we eat a plant-based diet, but the claims where he links eating animals or eating dairy products to a a number of different disorders, just uh, many of them are not true. So Tom says, uh, it's almost like we're being distracted from these issues with novelty science. I can't be sure, but maybe have a look at the vid. So I did check it out for you, Tom. And uh, I I agree, sometimes we do sort of novelty science, because I think it's interesting. Like we can't do worthy science all the time, but I, we also do try and report stuff that is factual and comes from reliable resources, and I don't think that video is one. Uh, so you asked for my opinion, you've got it. Tom, thanks very much. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Uh, thanks to uh, Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Hugo de Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future
2: Proof
1: with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland.
2: Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.